Welcome back to True Crime B&B, week 65. Week 65, I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And I am having a hard time seeing today, so I hope I can read. And I am just having a hard time, so we're just going <laughs> to power right. through. Well, let's get this show on the road. Who are you going to bring to us today? I decided to do a more historical one today. It's mid-century, so not super old, but it takes place in a now torn down building that was once known as the Claypool Hotel in Indianapolis, Indiana. Oh, okay. Interesting. And there were two known murders that occurred there, and so I'm going to tell you about both of those ladies and what we do and don't know about what happened to them. Do you have any idea where, what part of Indianapolis is located? Like north, south, east, west? I know it's Washington Street. It's like literally right next to the Capitol building. Okay, so it's downtown. It's downtown, downtown, yeah. Okay. The first woman we're going to talk about is named Mayoma Little, born April 10th, 1910 in Abbeville, Georgia. She attended nursing school in Athens and then married an army man named Lawrence Ridings soon after. They divorced a couple years later, but she kept that last name, so she is now Mayoma Little Writings. That's kind of cute. I know, I would have kept it too. It's like little red riding hood. Yes, it is. <laughs> During her nursing career, she treated and befriended Franklin D. Roosevelt back when he was still a senator and he wasn't the president of the United States yet. Okay. I think he had polio, didn't he? He had polio. That's what it was. Yes. She and Franklin had a very good relationship, and he ended up giving her the nickname Husky. <laughs> Because she was so strong, but I just put after that, yikes, I wouldn't like that. I don't think I, I don't think I would take that as much of a compliment. And she wasn't husky, she was tiny. I guess maybe in mid-century it probably meant a little bit nicer things than it does now. Or it was ironic. True. It's like a chihuahua named Spike or something, you yeah, know? Yeah, or a, a bald guy <laughs> named Harry. <laughs> After that nursing stint in Georgia, Mayoma then moved to Washington, D.C., where she worked as an auditor for the government, and that introduced her to the WAC, the Women's Army Corps, which she joined as a nurse in the beginning of 1943 at the age of 33 years old. Mm-hmm. She was stationed at Camp Atterbury in Indiana, which is about 30 minutes outside of Indianapolis. Mayoma made fast friends there, spending her weekends at the hotels in downtown Indianapolis. She's still a young woman. She wants to go out and party and not get in trouble doing it on the base. So that's what she would do with her friends. There was one woman that she would go often with. They would get a room together and then go to these parties together as like a safety measure. Right. However, right before this happened, that woman had left the army and was no longer living there. She moved back home. And so now Mayoma was doing this alone every weekend. Okay. So on August 28th, 1943, Mayoma checked into a room at the Claypool Hotel on the seventh floor, alone. Later that evening, a female guest called down to the lobby after hearing a woman screaming in a nearby room on the seventh floor. Oh boy. By the time the hotel staff came up to that room where the screams were coming from, the screams had stopped and they opened the door and there was absolutely nothing. They found it completely empty. So they went back down to the guest book to see who was supposed to be in that room. And there was a soldier, a male soldier, checked in there from Camp Atterbury. But he had checked out earlier in the evening. So it was supposed to be an empty room. They couldn't figure out. We're not sure what happened in here, but it seems everybody's okay. And they just right shoved it off and walked away. That's weird. How do you even get into a room that's supposed to be empty? Back in the days before the key cards, mm-hmm. maybe... When they checked out, maybe they just left the room open for housekeeping? True. I don't know. Or even could be a member of the staff. Who knows? It could be. 
Before this had happened, about six o'clock that evening, Mayoma had called the bellboys up to her room to deliver a six pack of soda or something like that because she had been drinking and wanted to have a mixer. Okay. So the bellboys dropped that off and they said that when they were in her room that evening, there was another woman with her and she had black hair and they described this woman and was sitting on the bed just smiling at them and then they left and then the screaming incident happens. They go up to a nearby room. It's not Mayoma's room, but they check it. Nobody's in there and they're like, okay. Finally, at eight o'clock that evening, a housekeeper knocked on Mayoma's door to see if she needed anything or room turned up or whatever. Mm-hmm. And when she received no response to that, she entered and found Mayoma, deceased, still mostly dressed, but her underwear was on the floor next to her, next to a broken bottle of whiskey. Oh, wow. That happened in a very short period of time. Yep. About an hour and a half before this, the bellboy was just up in her room and there was a woman with her, so nobody's like, okay. That's bizarre. All right. Her face, throat, and wrists had all been cut, presumably by the broken pieces of the whiskey bottle. So maybe they hit her with the bottle? Mm-hmm. But they found in the autopsy that her ultimate cause of death was from blunt force trauma to the back of the head from the whiskey bottle. And then oh. the rest of it was seemingly done post-mortem. Oh, jeez. So it seemed like a very personal attack. Somebody really wanted her dead and to make sure that she was dead. How could it be that personal? Who does she know there? She's been at this base for six months now. Does she stay at the hotel? Or she does she only stay on the, on the base? Okay. She stays weekdays on the base, weekends at the hotel. So someone else from the base was there. It was a very popular hangout spot for young army members to go and have parties and then go back to their normal lives. Yeah, because Atterbury is pretty far out of town. I mean, not far, far out of town, but it's out of town and mm-hmm. there's nothing around it. Yeah. The only thing known about Mayoma's stay at this hotel at this point was that the bellboys had come up around six and seen her with another woman. They then described this woman, apparently she was white, black hair, somewhere around the age of 40, and that continues, still to this day, to be their only lead. That's all they had to go based off of. One thing I did want to mention, though, is that all the articles I read about who the main suspects are of who could have done this to her, every single one said that they think it was a black man who was convicted and sentenced based on two other murders very similar to Mayoma's a couple years after hers. I just wanted to mention this because I don't think he did it, and I even, as a matter of fact, don't think he did the other two either, and I think it was very much a racism scapegoat situation, so I'm just going to go over that real quick with you, okay? The most similar that he was convicted of was the murder of Mrs. Merrifield, who was, I believe, also in Indianapolis in 1947, so a couple years after Mayoma died. She was found stabbed in the neck in her home during an attempted rape. They finally arrested this young black man named Robert A. Watts, and he gave a confession at that point to her murder. However, he was then sentenced to death, and at this point, Robert Watts said, I didn't do this. The police were beating me and telling me I had to say this, and I didn't But now that I'm being put to death, I might as well just come clean and say I have nothing to lose. And nobody believed him. And then he was put in the electric chair and killed in 1951 for that. Wow. Because we know that there have been a lot of coerced confessions over the years, especially. I mean, we've seen it even recently. But people of color have not gotten a good shake on not having those false confessions used against them. Anyway, sorry. Some interesting facts about the murder that he went down for that they just completely left out conveniently in the trial. 
the neighbor of Mrs. Merrifield had seen at the time of the murder a black-haired woman scurrying out and away from the home and completely matched the description that the bellboy gave of the black-haired woman that had been in Mayoma's room that night. Well, that's weird. They also found long, thin, black hairs fisted in Mrs. Merrifield's hands. So it seems that this woman... And I just think that's very strange that the only things we know about these two women's very similar murders was that this black-haired woman was there, seemingly at the time. And then they just decided, oh, that's not important. Let's no kill woman this 20-year-old black man instead because... No woman could ever do a thing like this. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But a lot of people seem to think that the woman was involved, even if she didn't kill them specifically, maybe in like a trafficking type of situation. She's the lure in, and then once she befriends them hands them over or something like that we don't know i don't know the one had her hair in her hands so she had some physical part of it just weird the whole situation is very weird we don't have any answers and that's just unfortunately yeah what we know about what happened to mayoma the case was very well known because of the news and that she was friends with president roosevelt right it became popular in a way of people were just coming forward and confessing to this and then time and time again police were having to disprove that and they i think it was either a notoriety or a mental health thing i'm not really sure but they had a total of four people came forward at various times with full confessions and knowledge of the scene oh i beat her with a whiskey bottle who the fuck would have known that so that wasn't in the news no it was just she was found murdered in this hotel and that was if you know this woman or have seen her this weekend please call that's what it was released and then wow but all these people that had knowledge of it, these four people, they didn't know each other. And then they later, they're like, this confession wasn't real because you were in Mississippi when this happened. That's bizarre. I don't know. So it was just popular, I guess, in a way of what the fuck is going on. People, for some reason, just wanted to be associated were... with this murder. Weird. That's... <laughs> it's just no it's no explanation. It's just g- gruesome. It's bizarre in a kind of gruesome way of wanting to jump on the train of notoriety on something so terrible. Yeah. The second murder that took place in the Claypool Hotel was Dorothy Poor, born in 1935 in Chicago, but she was raised in Clinton, Indiana. She had recently, at the age of 18 years old, been visiting the city of Indianapolis in order to get more job prospects and hoping that if she moved to the big city, she'd actually have a chance of getting an education, furthering her career, essentially. So she would only come for the weekend and then go back home with her parents in Clinton. And on one of those weekend trips, Dorothy arrived on July 15th, 1954, 11 years after Mayoma's death, planning to go home on the 17th of July. And we don't know what happened in between all this time. But on July 18th, a maid cleaning a room on the sixth floor of the Claypool Hotel followed a bad odor coming from the dresser in the room. Oh, God. No. Yeah. When she opened up the second drawer of the dresser, she found a partially clothed deceased woman shoved inside wearing only her undergarments and a thin slip. So basically what you would go to bed in, maybe. How do you fit an entire person in a dresser drawer? And I did write down, because I knew you were going to ask that, the measurements of the drawer, because Dorothy was five foot six and 125 pounds, so she's small, but she's not itty-bitty. That's a yeah woman, you know? And the drawer was 24 inches by 48 inches and 10 inches deep down. I guess. I guess you might be able to do it, but you wouldn't. 
tight squeeze, though. It seems like her legs were folded with them underneath. Weird. But, wow. yeah, it's just really bizarre. Awful. That poor That poor housekeeper. And it's always the poor housekeeper. These people are making, like, probably at this time, like, $2 an hour. If that. I'm, fucking... I'm sure they weren't making $2 an hour in 1954. Good lord. When the coroner got there, there were no signs of violence on her body, so they didn't have an apparent cause of death yet. But when they did the autopsy, they found that she had been strangled slash smothered. They weren't really sure which one, but either way, suffocated some kind of way. And he also determined that she had been dead for around 36 hours by the point when they found her. So sometime on July 16th, she had died. Wow. And had whoever killed her taken all of her belongings out of the room? Mm-mm. So everything was there as if she were still checked no. into the room. Here's the bizarre thing. She didn't have a room at this hotel. She was at a different hotel in Indianapolis oh. that, that she was supposed to be staying at. But her belongings were found in that room. They had been stuffed inside the air vent. The stuff that she would wear out of the hotel were in the air vent. Wow. And she didn't know anybody in Indianapolis, just a heads up. This is only her second trip into the city ever. Wow. That so, poor thing. 18 years old. Mm-hmm. So somebody obviously snatched her from somewhere or, mm-hmm. or lured her up there to their room. Yeah. Suffocated so. her. It just seems to me, if you're the guy who had that room... Mm-hmm. And if she can be fit into a small little drawer, mm-hmm. wouldn't you think you'd be safer putting her in something and taking her out of like the room? Like a suitcase or... Out of the room that is associated with you? I mean, they and... know whose room that was, right? And we'll see why he wasn't worried about that. Okay. The room had most recently been rented to a man named Jack O'Shea on the 15th and 16th, so the day that she was murdered... And seemingly placed in that drawer. This was a false name. He of course. also went in the guest book, provided a false address and false license plate number, which belonged, it was a legit license plate number, but it belonged to another couple who was staying at the hotel. And I guess he probably had just seen it in the parking lot and wrote that down as his car. They didn't really know where this guy had gone after this. As I told you before, Dorothy had not been registered to stay at the Claypool Hotel, but rather the Lorraine Hotel, which was about a block and a half away from this hotel. Most of her family and friends agree that the only reason she would ever have ended up at the Claypool Hotel that evening would have been a prospective job offer. That she wasn't the type of person that would just go off with a man because he offered to buy her a drink or something like that. Police examined the handwriting from the check-in book and matched it to another guest who had stayed in the hotel a week prior. So a different name, but he had the exact same handwriting. And that name was listed as Victor Hale Lively. They tracked down this Victor, and he lived in Missouri. So they drove down to Missouri and got him there and picked him up, took him back to Indianapolis. And after they put him back into the jail cell, he immediately confessed to her murder. Wow. I just thought that was like... Yeah. Victor, at this time, was 25 years old, and he worked as a roofing salesman. He had been divorced six times. At 25 years old? At 25 years old. What the hell? And they said it was because he was a very violent drinker, and he also was the father of one, but he didn't have any custody of that child. I don't think I need an explanation for that. Yeah. Six times? How in the hell did he get six women to marry him? I mean, he wasn't a bad-looking guy, and in, in, back in that time, it was, yeah, you don't marry for love, it was more like you fall after you marry this guy. 
You hope. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, you're just looking for someone to give you some security. Mm-hmm. Apparently, when he had checked in, the bellboys had interacted with him and then showed him up to his room. So they had given a composite sketch to the police, and it looked exactly like him. That's actually some pretty good police work for 1954. Isn't that wild? I thought that was good, too. I also thought, these poor fucking bellboys that had to go to all these trials and get, talk to the police, I wonder if it was the same bellboy. 13 years later? 13 It's possible. Like, I guess, I guess possible. he's a bellman now, but like... <laughs> <laughs> like well, they do call him bellman, so yeah, that's okay. I don't know. I guess after you're 18, now you're a bellman. When Victor gave his confession, he said, yes, I strangled her after she had denied his sexual advances. And he got angry. He'd been drinking all night and he couldn't stop it. So he strangled her. Was he there on business because he used a fake name for a reason? Did he come there just because he wanted to kill somebody? He wouldn't give any more information Because there's no other reason for him to come there a week later and use a fake name. Yeah, I don't know. Or maybe he had friends in the area. That was never addressed in anything I read, so I can't tell you. But again, it was forethought to use a fake name. Yeah, so he clearly had some kind of intention. Maybe he was planning on hiring a sex worker and didn't want to get caught, and then that didn't turn out, so he just tried luring in a naive country girl that was there for the weekend. Who was looking for a job. Yeah, so. I'm a salesman. Come here. I'll give you some work doing mailers for me or something like that. His confession, though, didn't completely add up because he said he strangled her around 2.30 in the morning that day that she was murdered. And then he sat on the bed in the room with her for a while until sunrise when he decided to hide her in the drawer and then take off. But the coroner doesn't agree with that version of his story because he said, with how tightly this woman was shoved into that drawer... There is no way with rigor mortis setting in that he was going to be able to bend her limbs enough to fit her into that if he did it four or five hours after she died. He seems to think it was within 30 minutes of her dying that she was put into the drawer. Well, if he was really smashed, like he probably claimed he was. That's true. Time does just... He may have thought he sat there for two or three hours when he really sat there for five minutes and like, oh, I got to stuff her in a drawer. And if you're panicking, too, that can make the world seem like... Yeah, it distorts... Five minutes seems like seven hours to you, you know? Yeah, it totally distorts time. So, he was sentenced to life in prison in Indiana, and he was paroled in 1980, but four months later, he died of natural causes. So, he never really got freedom again. There's that. And he didn't get to suck any more women into his abusive world of marriage. Those are the two murders that happened at the Claypool Hotel. Some history that happened afterwards. In 1967, a fire broke out on the fourth floor of the hotel, and it was torn down and had to be replaced. It now is an embassy suites that's still in the exact same spot in Indianapolis. But I wanted to show you this little postcard, vintage postcard they found from when the Claypool Hotel was first built. Okay. Can you read the fine print at the top? Absolutely fireproof. <laughs> What year was it built? 1903. Okay, because that was a huge thing back then. Yeah, I just think it's funny. It's giving Titanic vibes. The unsinkable. (laughs) The thing is that they built those buildings that they called fireproof because they built them out of non-combustible materials. Yeah. But all the contents are combustible. It's Mm -hmm. not the building itself that's the problem. It's the contents of the building. And that's where all the terrible 
caustic gases come from and you know there's foam that's letting out cyanide when it burns and there's Mm -hmm. and it's stuff that creates terrible thick smoke that chokes you out i mean it helps for sure that they're not stuffing the walls with newspaper anymore but like you know like (laughs) yeah but fireproof absolutely fireproof is a bold statement even for 1903 it is a bold statement but yes i just thought that was kind of funny so we can post that (laughs) This Embassy Suites is known to be one of the most haunted areas of Indianapolis. It's on the ghost tour there. Really? Uh-huh. And it's said that the spirits of Dorothy and Mayoma remained in the still-standing Embassy Suites. Female guests are the only ones who have ever reported seeing these women or having an experience where they think it was a spiritual event happening. These ghosts are like, fuck the patriarchy! No, for real though. Because they're known to, female guests will unpack their suitcase, get ready and go out on the town and then come back to the hotel room and their suitcase is packed back up. And then they ask the hotel staff, did somebody come in here and clean up my stuff? And everybody's like, no, we didn't. And this has happened to multiple women who have stayed at this hotel. They seem to think it's one of these two girls saying, you need to leave. Get out of here. This is not a safe place for you. Yeah. Also, in the lobby bathroom, there have been reports, again, multiple women have said this happened to them. They'll come out of the stall, and there's a woman wearing a mid-century style dress, and the woman will ask them, are you enjoying your stay? And then when they say yes, she simply would look them in the eye and lean closer and say, are you sure? And then she would just walk out of the bathroom. Oh, that kind of gave me a little bit of chills. And I'm not even superstitious. And I just love the fact that these strong-ass women, maybe in some weird parallel, are still there saying, get your ass out of here. That's a great story. I don't know. I wanted to end on that. I mean, it's a great story about the ghosts, not a great story about the murders. I know. It gave me the creeps, too. Thank you for bringing us that. So now I want to go stay at the Embassy Suites in Indianapolis. But, you know, I mean, to be fair, though, the absolutely fireproof building that was built in 1903, it did last until 1967 before it burned out. True. Wow. Fun fact. Interesting. Well done. Thanks, Mom. All right. So this is a Northern Ohio story. Mm. Joanna Orozco grew up in the west side of Cleveland. Her paternal grandparents had originated in Guatemala and had made the difficult journey to the United States in 1985 because there was a lot of poverty and a lot of growing violence that was taking over Guatemala at that time. Mm -hmm. They had brought their children looking to give their family a chance at a better life, and while they eventually did obtain legal status to be in the United States, they maintained their heritage and they maintained their culture, and they kept in touch with those still in Guatemala, and they would assist them by sending them money or gently used clothing and goods and things like that to help them have a better life in Guatemala. Okay. As the family got settled in the U.S., they found their way to northern Ohio, where Mm -hmm. manufacturing jobs were plentiful, and the three children found their own jobs, their own loves, and their own lives. Their son, Alberto, married a young woman of Puerto Rican heritage named Carmen, and they had two children, Joanna and Kevin. But while the family was generally stable and loving, Carmen suffered from late-stage kidney disease. When Joanna was only 10 and Kevin was 8, Carmen had a kidney transplant, which was donated by Alberto's mother, Juanita. They hoped that she would be out of the woods after this, but the family was really struggling because they had to pay $1,000 a month for anti-rejection drugs that would keep Carmen's body from rejecting her new kidney. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it was becoming clear that Alberto had a dependence on alcohol, and this was only worsened by the stress about Carmen's health. 
He drank too much, and then this was followed by fighting with Carmen, and this led to the family pleading with him to please get help to get his drinking under control. The money problems ended up causing foreclosure upon Carmen and Alberto's house, and they moved in with Alberto's father and mother, where they were already six other family members staying with the grandparents. Wow. Joanna and her mother left this place first. It was just too much for them, and they headed south to Tennessee to stay with Carmen's sister. Joanna and her mother started truly bonding while in Tennessee. Without the added pressure of Alberto's drinking and the marital problems and the money problems and the alcohol problems and his occasional abusiveness. When Alberto and Kevin followed them two months later down to Tennessee to reunite the family, the time together was actually far more peaceful than it had been under day-to-day life in Mm -hmm. northern Ohio. The family was calmer, more playful together, they went sightseeing together, and Alberto's drinking had become far less intrusive into their lives. But Joanna's mother, Carmen, was getting weaker, and she needed another kidney because the transplanted one was failing. Joanna offered to donate one of hers, but she was only 13 and too young to donate. So Carmen continued having dialysis to filter the toxins out of her blood, but dialysis isn't easy on a body either. And one day while she was undergoing treatment, she had a stroke at the age of 34. So young to be having these problems, too. Yeah, for sure. Doctors told the family that Carmen was not going to come out of the coma that her stroke had caused. And after some time processing this news, Alberto allowed her life support to be turned off. Carmen's devastated body clung to life for four days before she passed away. And this loss was crushing to Joanna because the two of them had just learned to get along, to understand one another, and to be mother-daughter during their time in Tennessee. Just as Joanna had come to value her mother, she had lost her, and it upset her that she thought her mother had given up. She wondered why her mom hadn't fought harder to live. Joanna later came to grasp that this wasn't the case at all, but that Carmen had just had no chance to live a full life without another kidney. As an escape from the pain of losing her mom, Joanna wanted to go for a few days after her mother's funeral on a camping trip into the mountains with some friends from a church group. Her father had asked her to stay home, He just wanted to be with her, but she really felt that she needed to get away, just from all of it, for a Mm -hmm. few days. The morning after arriving there, she was in the forest with her group when she was notified that there was an emergency at home. Her father's sister, Hilda, had arrived at camp to take her home and informed Joanna that her father had been driving home from a soccer club meeting and had fallen asleep at the wheel, and he had been killed at the age of 35. And 14-year-old Joanna and 12-year-old Kevin had lost both of their parents in less than two weeks. Joanna blamed herself, thinking that if she had stayed home, maybe her father would still have been alive. But she raised her face to the sky and swore she would look after her younger brother. She would graduate from high school. Her mother had been a dropout. And she would go to college. She would make her parents proud. Joanna and Kevin moved back to Cleveland to live with their dad's parents, Juanita and Wosbeli Orozco. She tried to be strong, but she struggled. She started socializing with people from her school, and under their influence, she started to let herself get caught up in self-medicating. She came home a little bit drunk one time, and her brother was horrified. Realizing that the last thing she wanted to do was cause him any more trauma, she promised her brother Kevin she wouldn't drink anymore. In order to find more wholesome activities to keep herself occupied, Joanna got very involved in the drama club and the Latin dance ensemble and tried to live a down-to-earth, calm life and be a good influence on her brother. What a tough spot. In 2004, Joanna, I keep alternating with this, but the name is Joanna. It's not Johanna. Okay. 
Joanna went out with a friend on a warm summer evening to meet up with the friend's boyfriend. After they met up with him, they realized he had his younger half-brother with him. Joanna remembered the little brother from not only middle school, but even as far back as second grade, when they had both attended Walton Elementary School on the west side. His name was Juan Ruiz, Jr., and he had always been shy and funny, but he had more recently started getting into trouble. He was a year younger than Joanna, and he remembered her, too. She and Juan sat on the front porch talking about all the things that had gone on in their lives since the last time they'd known one another. He asked her for her number, and she told him no, she'd get his number later. Over the next couple of months, they talked here and there, and the conversations started to become deeper and more intimate. His parents had split up. He had been very hurt and upset by it, and he'd started acting out. He started getting into fights at school. As the two of them got closer, he asked her out on a date to go see a movie. He wanted to take her to see Coach Carter with Samuel L. Jackson. But first, Juan wanted to start things off properly by approaching Juanita and Wosbelli and asking permission to take Joanna on a date. He showed up January 30th, 2005 with a fresh shave and his hair cut neat, shook Wosbelli's hand firmly and kissed Juanita on the cheek. They had some doubts about Juan. They knew his family had been unstable, that he had been in some trouble. He had used some drugs by his own admission. Mm -hmm. His response to this was he was working hard to prove himself and that he was working two jobs now because he felt more motivated to make something of himself since meeting Joanna again. The grandparents believed his sincerity and gave their permission for the two to date. Their romance started off sweetly, perfectly, ideally. She found him to be funny and a great listener. He was there for her when she needed to talk about the things that had happened to her in her life. He bought her little gifts and he bought her chocolates. He was just sweet to her. He treated her like she was the most important thing in his world. People at their high school looked up to them and they were a very popular couple. The high school drama teacher said about them, quote, they were gorgeous, gorgeous, and they looked good on each other's arms. They were the ideal couple. Everyone wanted to be like Joanna and Juan. They were outgoing, personable, and very much in love. Everyone at Cleveland's Lincoln West High School knew them and idealized them. But like everything that seems perfect on the surface, nothing ever is. The first year and a half was blissful and idyllic, but at that point, Juan had become so invested in Joanna that he started to become possessive. He would accuse her of flirting with other guys, which she said she never did. He wanted to have total possession of Joanna, and that irrationality made him start to become a different person. Joanna saw him changing into something she didn't recognize, but she still loved him and thought she could help him get past this. She later deemed that she had been in denial. When the relationship started to turn dark and unsustainable, Joanna began keeping a journal of her feelings about what was happening. He had started physically and verbally transgressing against her, pushing her, calling her names, just destroying everything they had built together. It broke her heart. Seeing that she should not continue tolerating this kind of behavior, Joanna told Juan that she wanted to end the relationship. He threatened to kill himself. He later would threaten to kill her. He would beat on her until she would give in and say, okay, fine, we're still together. Several times he twisted her arm or kicked her. One time he kicked her so hard it left a permanent mark on her. She was truly frightened of him now. One day in February of 2007, Joanna decided that she was going to start removing bits of Juan from her life, and she started this by taking his photos off of her MySpace page. He noticed this immediately, and he snuck over to her bedroom window in the middle of the night. She opened her window to tell him basically to go away. He covered her mouth as she opened the window. He pulled out two knives, 
stood there begging her to give him another chance, climbed in the window, he held the knife to her throat, then he held it to his, then he put it near her heart. She's trying all this time. She tried to keep quiet, and she just fought the urge to throw up as he was kissing her and forcing her to have sex, threatening to kill her if she reported this rape to anyone. But the next morning, her little brother Kevin could tell something was wrong with her during their drive to school. She told him part of the truth. She said that Juan had come over and threatened her with a knife. They got to school. She dropped her little brother off. Joanna got to school and spilled out the whole story to her two best friends. They then convinced her that she needed to tell an advisor, so they went with her to report it. The advisor took the girls to the principal who called authorities. Joanna was taken to a hospital and a rape kit was completed, but Joanna's bigger worry at that moment, and this is the kind of person that she was, she was worried that if her grandpa Wo's belly heard what had happened to her, that he might have another heart attack. So oh. she's been threatened with her life and raped, and she's worried about her grandpa's reaction if he finds out this happened. Ugh. Juan, who had been expelled in November 2006 for bringing a weapon to school, so three months before this happened, was now working at White Castle, where he was arrested. But that night, Juan called Joanna from the Cuyahoga County Juvenile Detention Center, she screamed when she heard his voice and threw the phone down. Two more times over the next couple of days, he called her from payphones there, and Joanna was devastated that he wouldn't just leave her alone. How are they allowed to call the person that they victimized for the reasoning they're in jail? But at the same time, I don't know how they would regulate that, so... Yeah, I mean, they're just a bank of payphones, and <sighs> so they just go up and make Ugh. their calls. Just as Joanna had thought she would be more secure with him in jail, she found out that the detention center had been overcrowded and he had been sent home with an ankle monitor four days after his arrest. She asked for additional patrols around her home, knowing that he was not in the detention center. Joanna had not felt safe in her bedroom since the attack and had been sleeping on the family's couch next to their dog, but having him out of jail was really upsetting to her. Several times she saw him around the neighborhood. Once he pounded on the door but disappeared before anyone answered it. Her Aunt Hilda had moved out couple of blocks away and so she started staying at her aunt's house which okay. was just a little distance from her grandparents house yeah but it's a place he doesn't know of probably so i think he found it Ugh. she still really longed to go to prom even though she wasn't going to go with juan they had originally planned to go together but obviously that wasn't no thanks <laughs> yeah she was also set to graduate in only a few months as the class of 2007 on March 4th, 2007, she excitedly modeled a shimmery brown dress that she planned to wear to the prom at the end of May. In another week or so, the senior class would also be ordering their red and white caps and gowns. Still on house arrest, Juan had work privileges, so he could leave his house to go to White Castle, and then he had to return home. He had taken the opportunity several times when he was supposed to be returning home or going to work, when he would go and just pound on the door where he knew that Joanna was going to be. So not even wait for her to come get the door still? No, he didn't. He didn't wait. He just went and pounded and then took off. Weird. Okay. He also slashed her tire. Detectives warned him again to stay away from Joanna. Juan walked out of his house on March 5th, 2007. He had a mask and a sawed-off shotgun. He waited for a long time outside of where Joanna was living. She walked out of the house before 5.30 p.m., ready to head out to an evening cosmetology class. She opened her car door put the key into the ignition, and out of the corner of her eye, she saw someone coming out of the bushes on the left side, dressed all in black. She was confused. She looked up at the eyes behind the mask. She knew it was Juan. 
She blared her horn. She just started laying on the horn while she stared into those eyes, hoping someone would come out and take this guy away from her. Mm-hmm. For about ten seconds, she stared into his eyes and held the horn down, and everything went black. Juan was gone by the time help arrived. Maritza Santiago, who lived next door and had known the family for a long, long time, heard the gunshot and rushed to check on Joanna. She said that the scene was horrifying with the tissue and the gore and that she could never put herself through seeing such a thing ever again. She tried to call 911, but she could not get through. Wow. It was just busy, I guess. She was getting a busy signal or no one was answering. I don't know which. Wild. Juanita came outside and Maritza wasn't going to wait. She couldn't get through to 911. Maritza put Juanita and Joanna in the car and she drove while Juanita pressed a bath towel to Joanna's face. The blood was just pouring out from where her jaw used to be. Juanita asked in Spanish, Did he do this to you? Did Juan do this to you? Joanna was only semi-conscious, but she barely moved her head in an affirmative. Yes, it was Juan that did this to her. The blood loss was so heavy that it saturated the towel and ran between her grandmother's fingers. Maritza drove like a bat out of hell to get to the emergency room. It was later recalled by the women that Maritza laid on the horn the entire way to the hospital. Get out of my way, guys. I know. And this consisted of several miles, at least 10 stop signs, and three traffic lights. And although it was rush hour traffic in the afternoon, and this was West 25th Street, it was packed, and other drivers just seemed to grasp. This was serious desperation that Maritza had to get through. And she said the cars just split off to the sides to let them through. Mm -hmm. And the article that I read that was in the Cleveland Plain Dealer said that it was a biblical parting or something like that. I don't remember the exact wording, but it was a great article. Like the Red Sea? Exactly. At the hospital, Maritza ran into the building, screaming that her neighbor was in the car and had been shot in the face. When doctors and nurses tore outside to get to her, Joanna was leaning on Juanita and was trying to walk inside. She was placed down into a wheelchair and rushed into an emergency bed. Joanna was so severely injured and was losing so much blood that doctors were shocked that she was even still alive when she reached Metro Health Hospital. There was so much damage, so much shredding and bleeding that the first critical thing doctors had to figure out was whether she even had an airway. With the front of her jaw destroyed, there was swelling and bone fragments that could very easily be blocking her airway, and they couldn't believe that somehow during this trip in Maritza's car across town, Joanna had even continued to breathe. But because the shotgun had been packed with three different sizes of pellets, she had varying degrees of damage on different parts of her face and neck. One bird pellet had stopped just short of her spinal cord. Another had stopped just short of her optical nerve. These were small birdshot pellets, but had one of the buckshot pellets, which are larger ones, taken that same trajectory, Joanna would not have survived. The damage to Joanna was not only life-threatening, but also life-changing once her life had been saved. She was missing her entire chin, her upper neck, and almost all of her lower lip. She looked in the mirror and she was devastated. She said she just broke down and cried. She screamed that she was a monster. She was in the news so much that the hospital actually gave her a fake name to protect her identity so that her family could be called in the waiting room without alerting everyone there that she had been through another procedure. Mm -hmm. Her hospital name was Alexis Kennedy. She had been in the hospital for a month when Dr. Michael Fritz recreated a lower jaw for her out of a bone and skin taken from her left leg, which took a 13-hour surgery to accomplish. 
Nine more surgeries were needed to help her regain the physical abilities to speak, eat, and to soften scarring so that she could regain the function, and eventually to try to help her feel better about how she looked. Mm-hmm. Over time, she had a total of about 14 surgeries. Dr. Fritz, knowing that she would be living with the results of his efforts for the rest of her life, promised her that he would not be done with her until she was done with him. She spent over 40 days in the hospital. She lost over 25 pounds, which is a lot because she was not a tall girl, but she only weighed 125 to start with, and she was down to 95 pounds when she left the hospital. When she finally was able to leave the hospital, she was driven home in the same rusty Honda Accord that had taken her to the hospital. The wild ride by Maritza that had almost certainly saved Joanna's life. Maritza wanted to make sure that they knew that this ride was going to be a little bit different. She said, today we have to stop at stop signs, okay? (laughs) (laughs) But jumping back in time to the day of the attempted murder, what happened to Juan? Police had arrived at Juan's home 30 minutes after he had shot Joanna. When they told him why they were there, he just laughed at them. He claimed he'd been home playing video games the whole time. He was taken in, he was arrested, he was placed in lockup, and that was the night that he first called her. That was when he called and she had screamed and thrown the phone across the room. From the detention center, he had sent her family a letter begging for their forgiveness. The letter said that Joanna had been a blessing in his life, but he didn't apologize for what he had done to her. He only apologized to her family and asked for their forgiveness. Juan was indicted, and Joanna hoped he would just plead guilty so that she didn't have to testify. She didn't want to ever see him again. She watched the calendar as May 19th started to come closer, the day of senior prom. Joanna still had the slinky brown dress in her closet, and she decided she was not going to let Juan take her memories of prom from her, so she was still going to go. But she couldn't wear that brown dress with its slit up the side that showed the location where the bone was taken from her left leg to rebuild her jaw. So she asked her tutor, a man named Bob Deucing, was a science teacher, and he had been coming to her home to help her finish her classes so she could still get her diploma. She asked him to go to stores and find her a new dress. Well, he's a middle-aged guy. He doesn't (laughs) know how to buy a dress. But he went to stores and bought her similar dresses to ones that she pointed out to him in magazines that she liked. Mm -hmm. And eventually, he brought her one that she loved. It was too big for her. It was a stunning emerald green dress with a plunging neckline. She asked for a smaller size. The school actually called the store where Bob bought it and asked them to donate the dress to her, and they did. And Joanna's grandma Juanita altered it to fit her now tiny little body. A limo driver also donated his ride in time to escort Joanna safely to and from prom with her date. Joanna's Aunt Hilda sewed a face covering that matched her dress so that she wouldn't feel awkward at the dance with her jaw and her scars showing. Mm -hmm. Joanna's date was a boy named Alex that she had dated a few times sometime before her world exploded. She was greeted at the hotel where prom was being hosted in a volley of excited cheers and shrieks. Everyone wanted to hug her, but some were afraid to hurt her. She floated like a butterfly from table to table, greeting everybody. Before the end of the night, Joanna had been named prom queen and wore the sparkly tiara for the rest of the night. On June the 6th, Joanna graduated with her class and she thought about her parents as she fulfilled this part of her promise to them. She raised her diploma in a salute to them both. On August 10th, the assistant Cuyahoga County prosecutor called Joanna to tell her Juan was ready to plead guilty. She needed to get quickly to the courtroom for the hearing. When they arrived, Juan's mother wasn't there. No one from his family was there. 
Juan's mother later said she had snubbed him after what he did, but Joanna's Aunt Hilda later told Juan's mother she should be there for her son. He would always be her son. And the hearing went forward. When the judge read the rape charge, it took Juan over one minute to reply that he pled guilty. He just sat there in silence for 60 seconds or more before he finally said guilty. He pled guilty also to attempted murder. In September, he was sentenced to 27 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Dr. Fritz accomplished a lot, and although Joanna will never look like nothing ever happened, she reached a point where she could look in the mirror without crying. She refused to feel sorry for herself. She eventually learned to accept herself as she is and not to mourn for what she used to be. And that's actually a great message for everybody to remember. Mm -hmm. We have to be happy for what we have and not sad for what we don't have. She decided to use her story to help other people through difficult situations. She spent the first few years speaking to groups of teenagers about not settling for violent relationships mm -hmm. and how to find resources to get out of them as safely as possible. Joanna spent her time also lobbying for state legislation to provide protection orders for threatened teenagers. After Joanna felt strong enough, she did start college. A woman she met there turned out to be the mother of another one of her former classmates. Christopher Fraser had always been sweet, had actually asked her out, but she had turned him down because she was already involved with Juan at that time. When Joanna met his mother, Christopher was living in Germany where he was serving in the U.S. Army. But in January of 2010, she went to their house for dinner while Christopher happened to be home on leave. They hit it off right away. I feel like the mom totally had them set up for that one. I think that she might have had something to She's do like, with it. She's like, oh, I can't believe you're home, Christopher. Well, you might as well come stay with us. <laughs> I don't know if it was supposed to, if she was supposed to know he was going to be home, but mm -hmm. I assume that she probably knew. That's a mom move. They hit it off right away, and they kept in touch by phone after that. And she fell head over heels for Christopher. Her scars didn't bother him at all. He just loved her for herself. And she had finally reached the point where she could accept herself as she was now. Otherwise, she doesn't think she would have allowed anybody to love her. And she wouldn't have allowed herself to love anyone else. Mm -hmm. In mid-2012, Joanna found out she was pregnant with Christopher's child and they married in August. Their son, Malcolm, was born the next March. Three and a half years later, they had another son, Valentino, and they still live in Germany. In 2015, Joanna's story was made into a play called Joanna Facing Forward, which was based on a 2007 award-winning nine-part article of the same title. This series of articles was originally published in the Cleveland Plain Dealer, written by Rachel Dissel, and it's still available online if you'd like to read it. It was really some really good, profound journalism. Mm -hmm. So the play ran for a week and was sold out in the Gordon Square Theater in Cleveland. Joanna flew in from Germany to see the opening night. She said it was beautiful and intense. She said, quote, The beautiful thing about it is I survived. Through this ugly thing, I survived. I could have stayed in a dark room feeling sorry for myself, and I didn't. I moved on with my life. Quote, the award-winning play has been produced and performed by several different playhouses. And I know this was a long story, but I thought it was important that we give enough information about her life before this attack so that you would understand the things she had been through. Because she had a rough life. She never had an easy time of it. There was this little bright period of time with Juan when things were beautiful. Mm -hmm. It could have been a great life, but he fucked it up. She is a survivor in every sense of the word, and I just think she's so resilient. And I'm so happy that she found a man and children and has a good life, and it's just... But you do have to think the things that she'd gone through in the past 
that also probably is one of the reasons why she is so emotionally and mentally strong now, enough to the point where she can get past it and just say, gotta keep going. Yeah. Old age is not guaranteed. Both of her parents died in their Mm mid-30s. That's a really young age for anybody to die. So that was Joanna Orozco Frazier, and she's an amazing woman. Okay, guys. Well, I think that does it, and we will see you next week for episode 66. Please follow us everywhere. Share us everywhere. Maybe not everywhere. Everywhere, please. Maybe don't, like, go on an obituary and just be like, hey, you guys should listen to this (laughs) show. Oh, my God. (laughs) No thanks. Yeah. Bye. Bye, guys. It sounded like Puss was falling down the stairs. And that was me. I was falling down the stairs. <laughs> Please tell me you didn't really have sex with Johnny Depp back in the day. <laughs> I see there's no answer to that. I, I did not have sex with Johnny Depp. Okay, good. He's, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. <laughs> <laughs>